Hi there, I'm William Murray. Welcome to the Service Center. And I still take those with me today. I often quote my mom or my dad and some of their wisdom to my team, the leaders that I work with across the company, because it's not complicated. It literally is just service and taking care of other people. Welcome back to the Service Center Podcast. I'm William Murray, and we're here to celebrate the people that make up the hospitality and service industry, their stories, their journeys, and their perspectives about service, hospitality, and people. We also touch on current issues that are really important to our field right now. I'm so glad you've stopped in today because my guest is a leader in the lodging landscape, Edwin Frizzell. Edwin is the Regional Vice President for CORE in Central Canada, and he's also the general manager of the flagship hotel, the Fairmont Royal York, located in the heart of Toronto. He has been in that role for almost nine years now, overseeing the completion of an epic renovation project to celebrate the 90th anniversary of the hotel, a project that took over five years and hundreds of millions of dollars to complete. It was such a large endeavor that management there simply call it the transformation. However, Edwin's journey into service started far from the shores of Lake Ontario and much closer to the home of Anne of Green Gables. See, he's a proud son of Prince Edward Island, raised learning service at his community's store, owned and operated by his parents. His education moved him to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and then he left the East Coast for the call of Disney. Now, hotels have been his world for the last 30 years, and he would eventually lead the very property that first ignited his passion for the lodging industry. Let's just jump into the first of two episodes with the extremely engaging Edwin Frizzell. As always, my name is William Murray, and welcome to the Service Center. I've heard that you are an early riser. That is 100% true. (laughs) What is it about the early hours? What are you getting out of those early hours that is uh, propelling you in your day? Well, I will tell you, Bill, that for me, uh, time is a valuable resource. But I've learned a very long time ago that you first have to fuel yourself if you want to be in service to other people. And very early on in my career, I learned that if I didn't take care of myself physically and mentally, that I would be of no value to anyone, my family, my constituents, the stakeholders, the teams I lead, et cetera. So uh, pretty religiously, my day starts at 530 in the morning and it's me time. And it's a routine on the treadmill, it's cardio, it's floor work, and it's some mindful time. In fact, through the pandemic, I sort of extended that a little bit because uh, obviously we were in a bit of a shutdown here in Toronto for a number of months. Uh, And I actually added a a harbor front walk. I'm fortunate to live on the harbor here in downtown Toronto. And so to be able to start the day with the sun rising over Lake Ontario and sort of add a a mindful moment or two, which is generally combined with with an athletic walk, was really something that helped me stay focused through the pandemic and be able to continue to find ways to just find that peaceful moment in the day. And so for me, yeah, getting up early is, uh, is I'm most productive. My I am at my most creative. I do some of my most robust thinking. I'm not going to call it best thinking because my team might say otherwise, but I do some of my most robust thinking in the early hours of the day. Don't come to me at five o'clock and ask me to be creative or, uh, or come up with new ideas. It's just not going to happen. But uh, yeah, for me, yeah, early riser always have been and probably always will be at this point. 
So now I'm interested because I also get up very early. We have a lot of animals here in the house. So I'm out the door walking my eight-year-old dog for, we do three or four miles every morning. The walking, the moving, and the clarity is good. How do you capture those ideas when you're, when you're moving around on the treadmill or out by the harbor front? I keep a journal beside me pretty much all the time. If you if you do spend time with me and my team would tell you, I constantly have a book. It's not it's not like a journal as in I'm journaling. It's more a place where I can capture things. And whether that's, you know, as I'm getting ready to go to sleep at night or, uh, you know, on a treadmill and or running between meetings, I find that things pop into my head and I, I need to capture that. Because otherwise, I find myself in a loop of trying to remember it so that I don't forget. So for me, uh, it's always been about trying to jot it down. And then, you know, when I have that appropriate time to be able to, you know, craft, be strategic, think about plans and those types of things, I, I take those notes and, and assemble them into some form of semblance. But that's for me the way that I do it. Some people use voice notes for me. Uh, it, it's a book, although I have recently transitioned to a, an electronic tablet that allows me to actually sort of sketch and email those notes off to members of my team. So, you know, technology does help make our lives easier at the end of the day. So you, you've gone the technology route as I hold up my book right here. <laughs> I believe in the book and, and the tactile experience of the pen and the paper, but I understand that we're in 2022 and we have to join the technological future. Well, it's part of my sustainability mission, right? At the end of the day, I have dozens and dozens of paper books that I've filled notes in over the years that at the end of the day, they end up, you know, not being of any value. So now using a technology tablet to be able to do that, which actually still has that feel of paper, to be honest with you. It's mm -hmm. a great tool called Remarkable. You're using it Remarkable. You to okay, we're yes. going to have to go a whole different conversation. Um, we'll <laughs> talk later about that because I'm very curious about that piece of technology. Now, you said you're doing walking along the harbor front of Toronto, which is very different than maybe the waterfront that you grew up by. I mean, you grew up on PEI. Thinking a lot about PEI today, Bill, to be honest with you, in the aftermath of Fiona, uh, and still know that uh, many of our good friends on the East Coast are uh, in a very difficult circumstance. But yes, that is my hometown. In fact, I do have a, a part-time residence there as well, all which thankfully fared uh, okay during Fiona for the most part. Uh, but yes, for me, I have kind of two sides of my personality, my downtown epicenter of the country, urban jungle uh, face. And then there's the me in shorts and a T-shirt barefoot on the beach of the Northumberland Strait. And both of those people are equally fascinated by water and find solace at various times of my day and my journey, depending on what the purpose of my time in those spaces are. It's very interesting to find somebody. I lived on the East Coast for 15 years, and it's very interesting to find somebody who can balance having the maritime spirit with also embracing the upper Canadian-ness of living in downtown Toronto and wear those two hats equally well. I've had the pleasure of living in a variety of places in my life through my hospitality journey. And I think I think that's a very interesting point. And the fact that for me, the lens of the people with whom you spend time is a great way to be a study of humanity. Uh, you know, my friends and family that live on the East Coast and sort of have that as their sphere have a very different outlook than, say, my friends and social circle here in Toronto. But equally, you know, I, I find energy and interest and uh, great conversation and great thought provoking ideas from both sources, if you will. And I would say the same thing about my time in Chicago. I'd say the same thing about my time living in Southern Florida. And even when I travel, in which I've had the pleasure of traveling pretty internationally through my career, it's just, it's why I love this business, learning from people. When I, and I learn something every single day. It's, that's also what helps me get up at 530 in the morning. I get excited about what I might learn today. 
And so, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. People that I meet sometimes go, really? You grew up on PEI? Or really? You went to school on the East Coast? Because they sort of see my urban persona of the RVP of the Royal York and, and whatnot, and they, they don't necessarily align those two things together. But hopefully when they get to know me a little bit, they see that that, uh, that East Coast spirit is alive and well. They align incredibly well. I think the kids would say, if you know, you know, right? <laughs> Those align incredibly well. Um, the East Coast spirit of hospitality and the maritime hospitality shines through and, it, and we can go across across our country and easily pick out those who have been influenced by the maritime spirit, if not have been born and raised there. And my uh, telephone would tell you that over the last uh, 72 hours is literally people from all around the world have been reaching out to me to check in and see how, you know, friends and family are doing uh, on the East Coast. So it's been very heartwarming to see that response. And I hope everybody is doing well. And they are. Thank you so much for asking. Good. Now, you had mentioned that you grew up in hospitality because your parents ran a general store. Mm -hmm. Whereabouts did they run that? Where was the store located? So yeah, not a general store, the, the general, general store. store. <laughs> I remember looking at a plaque in my dad's office when I was a kid, and it was an award that he'd received from the Imperial Oil Company, which you would all know today as Esso. And his family, my family, ran an Esso outlet for over 85 years. Uh, so if you can think back to what life on rural Prince Edward Island would have been like at that time, probably now almost a hundred years ago, you know, a very different social fabric, but the the center of the community, if you will, was the general store. My mom tells great stories of when she married my my dad and she, you know, became part of the general store family and had to learn the ropes of things to do and how to take care of customers and pump gas and uh, fill molasses jugs and things in the back shop. It just it is was a totally different time, but it was it was, and up until the time that my parents retired, it really was the center of the community and people would come from miles away to do their grocery shopping or to, you know, purchase a special cut of meat or to get a provision that my parents had sourced for them because of the connection that they made to the community. And for me, that was that's what I, you know, as soon as I was old enough to stand at the counter and run the cash register or stock the shelves or whatever it is that my parents felt that I should be learning to do at the time. It was about that spirit of community and about taking care of other people. I can remember my dad being like, speak when you're spoken to, you know, as soon as a customer walks in the door, you know, say hello, introduce yourself, make sure that they're welcomed. You know, our house was right next door to the store. Even if there were staff serving customers and my dad and my mom were, uh, you know, having their lunch break or what have you, when there was like, they could see a queue at the gas pumps. My dad would be up away from the table and be out to, you know, not keep somebody waiting. Those those were the kind of East Coast, you know, ethics, I think, if you will, that and values that were really instilled into me. And I, and I still take those with me today. I, I often quote my mom or my dad and some of their wisdom to uh, to my team, the leaders that I work with across the, the company, because it's not complicated. It literally is just service and taking care of other people. That spirit of community would have been driven home at a very, very young age. So. I would be curious to ask what forced you to pivot, not forced you to pivot, so to say, but what led you to go from uh, that sense of community in retail and the general store to being attracted to becoming a hotelier? Mm. 
much to my father's chagrin, I must tell you, and my brothers, actually, who I think both felt that I was going to perhaps go away to school and come back and, and help run the family business someday with a few pieces of additional knowledge that I might have gained outside of the, the island. It's a, kind of a funny a full circle story, if you bear with me for a few minutes, because I didn't really know what I didn't know when I was 17 years old, but I was a child of the 80s and I was like most people back then influenced by pop culture and of course television, the Facebook of today. And things that were very popular at that time were things about travel, like air, the show's called Airport or uh, Love Boat or Hotel, which happened to catch my attention. And, and I think as a young kid, I was like, wow, what a glamorous place. And that show was actually kind of very interesting because it looked very luxurious. There was lots of stories between the staff and the different guests who came into the hotel. And there was always, you know, some hijinks afoot, but it was all very sort of, you know, a sense of family and community, which which attracted me. And I said, you know, that's what I want to do. And I found my way to uh, get interested in hospitality and and uh, learned that it was, you were able to get an education. I actually have a Bachelor of Tourism and Hospitality. I'm actually the first official graduate from Mount St. Vincent in Halifax by alphabet, luckily. But I, I was in that first graduating class of a, a very unique program at the time. And uh, shout out to all my friends in Halifax. And so, you know, kind of launched my career. Well, I'll fast forward a couple of decades later, and I came to work here in Toronto uh, at the Fairmont Royal York and learned something really interesting. So Hotel, as a television show, was based on a book written by an author named Arthur Haley. Yes. Arthur Haley actually wrote the book Hotel while he was living in residence here at the Fairmont Royal York in Toronto. So in fact, the hotel that was featured in that television show, the reason that I became a hotelier actually is the hotel that I get to run today and have been a significant part of transforming into its next chapter. So if you want to kind of talk connecting the dots and maybe fate, I actually think uh, I was meant to be here some way or another. You never know where you're going to end up. And just to have that TV show inspire you to go on and then end up in the same hotel. That's fantastic. Now, I'm no James Brolin, Bill. So let me be clear. Right? I'm, not, I'm not aspiring to suggest that I would be uh, that kind of actor character. But just the fact that and, and the owner of the Royal York um, you know, was very kind and actually gave me a copy of that book, an original copy of that book as part of our celebration of the 90th anniversary of the hotel, uh, which I treasure greatly. And as I read the book, it's so funny to read it because the, the I mean, you know, TV shows are snippets of moments of time. But when you actually read the book, you can clearly see you know, the spiral staircase that used to be in the center of the lobby and sort of the, the, the character of the Royal York is very much alive and well in that book. And I think if it was written today, you know, this is the most filmed location in Toronto as awarded by Mayor Tory a couple of years ago. You know, I think actually today they might have filmed that TV show here. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. And they'd bring in Josh Brolin, the son of James. There you go. <laughs> All that to say, you know, I think if I'd known back then, I think I just knew. Uh, my mom told me recently, my dad unfortunately passed a few years back, but my mother has told me subsequently, you know, your father really never wanted you to go away and go into this. He didn't understand what this love you have of hospitality and this thought that you wanted to be, like, why would you want to go and work in a motel when you have a perfectly good job here taking care of the family business? And I don't I, I don't know that in his lifetime he truly understood what that really meant to be, but uh, my mom was sitting beside me in 2019 when I was awarded the Hotelier of the Year Award here in, in Toronto at the Pinnacle Awards. And she leaned over to me and gosh, it might make me tear up a little bit even thinking about it. She leaned over to me and she said, I think your dad would get it now. 
<laughs> the story makes sense because you, you have spent your entire life taking care of the community, except your community just changed. Exactly right. And your mother got to sit next to you and realize that you became a celebration of the corner of your community. Mm -hmm. But your community is countrywide now. A little bigger than the community of New Haven, Prince Edward Island, but uh, equally, I'm equally as passionate about it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so let's pop back and say hi to our friends at Mount St. Vincent University for a minute, because you graduated in 1990. I joined the faculty there in 2010, and I was there for five years. So I heard about you in the halls <laughs> um, because they're very proud of you as an alumnus there. You're celebrated there for the success and the leadership, and people look up to you in that location of somebody who has done so incredibly well. You'd uh, spoken about your education as being a really nice balance of classroom experience and practical experience. And I'd like to dig into that for a second. Why is that so valuable when we're dealing with hospitality students? Because we're different than other students. That balance of practicality and classroom theory is important. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I get warm, fuzzy feelings when I think about the campus uh, there in Bedford because it, uh, it's such a beautiful place. And I certainly hope that it didn't have any ill effects as part of the hurricane this past uh, weekend, because uh, literally that campus is just so incredibly inspiring in and of itself. For me, you know, gosh, it was such a great time to be part of post-secondary education. It was a new program. There was lots of opportunity to provide input, and that, frankly, is what attracted me to uh, that particular location and that school based on its history and the fact that you had a very intimate campus and the ability to really get to know you know each other as students and the faculty and there was a real sense of collaboration which was critically important the interesting thing too bill and i don't know if everybody remembers this or not but we were also off cycle with every other program because our our first couple of years our cooperative elements if you will were summer programs which makes sense for east coast hospitality that's when many of the businesses had need for additional staff and an opportunity was there for us as to go and, and work and learn uh, but then we switched into a you know you went on you were a semester in class and then you were a winter semester in a work program and then you were a summer semester in class and then you were a fall semester in work program so we got off cycle uh, with other students. And so we be actually became a very tight cohort because we were kind of in some ways our own only constant, if you will. And also, you know, I think it actually prepared us very well for what the reality of hospitality is all about. I moved 16 times in four years. And at the time, there wasn't a male residence on the campus at Mount St. Vincent University. So I was actually renting apartments in Halifax and having to move myself around, which was, all, again, all part of life education and life journey that allowed, I think, a good preparation for, you know, what actually happens in hospitality. We expect leaders in our companies today to move their families, to pick up and go and work in different locations. And frankly, often, if you'd like to get ahead or if you want to get that next opportunity, you need to sort of do it in another locale. And so I think even unknowingly at the time, a lot of the structure and the way that that program sort of materialized gave us not only educational skills, not only work uh, experience skills, but social fabric and really resilience and mindfulness about the fact that by choosing to go into this business that is incredibly rewarding, incredibly, you know, connecting to other people 
but also requires an, an inordinate amount of you giving of yourself in so many ways that leads to that reward, but you have to be prepared to put in that effort. So, you know, I think for me, that idea of cooperative education is incredibly important. And even if it's not a structured part of a program, whenever I speak to students at the various programs across the country and often ask the question, what do I need to do to get ahead? What do you think is a good idea for me to invest time and energy in? It has to be in some ways that practical experience, because although we'd all like to think that we're going to walk out of a four-year degree program and become a general manager of a hotel, the likelihood of that is very, very unlikely and in fact, before you are ever able to sort of take on that huge responsibility of leading and being responsible for the livelihood of teams and those environments, you know, you have a lot more to learn. And I think getting your mind sort of around this idea of hospitality being also a learning journey is a really critical piece of anyone's success. And for me, I credit Mount St. Vincent and the team and the, and the faculty there for doing an incredible job of setting up that expectation uh, and setting up that awareness, if you will, of what it was going to take to have that sense of longevity and to, and to stay in this industry as long as I have. What I loved about the program too, and, and it still exists to this day, is there is a framework and a mindset of serving. And that comes through the Mount St. Vincent idea of Caritas. And the program serving the students and the students serving the industry. So when you say that you're out of sync with a traditional university program, it just makes sense there because the program is serving you because you're serving the industry. And there is a through line of everybody knowing why they're there in that program. A hundred percent. But it's also tough. Like, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that, I mean, at that time, it was like, wow, gosh, this is and it's part of learning. I mean, I think post-secondary education, you know, there's an academic element to it as well. But I really strongly believe that there's a, a social and a sort of value setting part of post-secondary education. It comes from your living experience. It comes from, you know, having to figure out transportation and, you know, all the stuff that goes into, you know, transitioning from being a young student to being an adult, I guess. And I just I look back on it with incredibly fond memories, but I remember it being, you know, not easy. And, and funnily enough, one of my work programs that sort of stands out, I, I worked at a resort here in Ontario in Peterborough called Elmhurst. Peter Elmhurst and Marshall, uh, very well known in the industry. Peter was the head of TIAC for a period of time. Uh, I ran into uh, at an event recently in Ottawa, and it was just like we had sat down and had a coffee like, you know, a few months ago. And I, I don't even want to tell you how many years ago it was that I worked at that resort. But for me, it just seems like yesterday. And, you know, I think employers like that also need to be held up as an, a great example and recognized for making uh, a contribution to the industry and for taking a, a risk and putting students of hospitality into positions of authority and giving them the chance to learn and sometimes fail and stand up and learn again. And, you know, it, it, it is very much as, you know, the, the school has a role to play, but I think as industry leaders, we also have a role to play uh, to make sure that we continue to clear the path and to create opportunities for students in the future. I, I would never expect that people coming out of or students coming out of hospitality programs today, they're not going to have the same path that I had. But I have a responsibility. I firmly believe that I and our organization have a responsibility to continue to create space to to encourage and find ways to make sure that the, the way that they're going to change the industry over their lifetime is a journey that is equally as rewarding. And so, you know, I serve on a number of advisory boards and I, I, I really try to do my part to make sure that 
we don't overlook the fact that, you know, it's funny. I hear people talk all the time about, oh my gosh, we have such a labor crisis in the hospitality industry. And I often turn back to them and say, and that's awesome, but what are you and your organization doing to help solve that? Because if you're not invested in the schools, if you're not personally spending time clearing the path or helping to find resources or doing some part to fuel that student population, that's our future of this industry. Those are the people that are going to make decisions. If I have any influence on the industry today, it's because of what I learned over 30 years ago in Halifax. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't stop and just check in on your experience with the mouse. Because you spent a year, just over a year, just under a year, uh, moving from the Bedford Basin to the warmer, sunny shores of Florida. How did Disney impact you? Well, I know that your audience is not seeing me, but <laughs> I literally just pulled out of my drawer. We have my, gra the ears. my graduation, my graduation uh, ears from Disney University with my Prince Edward Island proud uh, name tag that I wore proudly as the ambassador to Epcot Center. Uh, for for a year, uh, just over a year, a phenomenal experience. Honestly, you know what's funny is I didn't actually think I was going to get chosen. I accepted another job. I, I actually had started another job after I finished my four year degree program uh, in Halifax with a with a hotel brand. Maybe a week or two after I started that job, the phone rang at like ten o'clock at night, and I picked it up, and it's like, "Hi, this is you know Sally from the Walt Disney World, Orlando, Florida," and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> And uh, she's like, you've been chosen to be part of the World Showcase Fellowship Program. And I'm like, I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally did. I went into work tomorrow and I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm quitting. I'm going to Florida. And not because I wanted I'm to I'm giving go you my two weeks notice two weeks ago. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bye. No, I'm like, I'm leaving tomorrow. They need me there like Monday. Oh, and gosh, what a great experience that was. Living with people from all around the world, well, the 11 Epcot Center countries, Getting to work in that incredible organization, going through the training programs that are part of Disney Magic, just the the life lessons, the you know crazy things that we got to do. Um, worked in all the different parks. Thankfully, as a Canadian, we kind of can uh, sometimes be perceived as other places. So I got to work in some pretty incredible spots all around uh, the Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando. Just look back on that with incredibly fond memories. And honestly, we have a that was again very long time ago. But we have, from my year that I was part of the Epcot Ambassador World, we have an online WeChat page. Uh, literally, they were all texting me all weekend long. How's everybody on PEI? How's your mom doing? I mean, these are people that I was I have been friends with for over 35 years. So nice. And again, just because I took that chance to say, hey, that sounds like kind of a fun thing to go do. And not only was it fun, I learned a ton professionally. I learned an incredible amount about myself. And got to meet incredible people from all around the world. And honestly, that really is what this business is all about. Disney has four key values. Uh, they have safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency. And I'm not bragging that I know those by heart. I did my research on those. There was one that stood out, and that was the show. And there's a customer service website that expanded on that. It described it as show up and be show ready. Learning that lesson right out of university probably played a role in how you carry yourself forward in this industry. I think my teams of all of the hotels that I've worked in through my career would tell you that that is absolutely part of my DNA. 
in fact, the practical application of that is at Disney is that there's a transition point where you actually go from being backstage to being on stage. And if you are on stage, the show is on, right? And so, you know, for us today in practical terms, you know, that's, you know, transitioning from the back of house of a hotel to a front of house, if you will, right? And so, you know, I do it today. Like before I, you know, walk out of my office and put my suit jacket on, you know, I, I have a mirror in my office, not because I'm necessarily vain, although my team would probably tell you otherwise, but to me checking to be like, you know, where's my, where's my service pin? Is my name tag straight? You know, am I ready to go out and like greet this customer or say hello to, or, you know, do a speech or kick off a fashion show or whatever it is I happen to be doing at that moment that you could wind that all the way back to, you know, putting on my Canadian lumberjack outfit and walking on stage behind the O Canada, you know, Circle Vision 360 attraction at Epcot Center. And it's a powerful message and a, and a powerful life lesson, right? It's like, yes, there's a time to be on and there's a time to be down or to reflect or to recharge or whatever those, whatever your personal journey is. But, you know, it's not a complicated philosophy, but man, do they drill it into you to the point where, you know, I remember like, you know, in Epcot Center, if you've ever been there, you know, it's like it's countries wrapped around the World Showcase Lagoon. Like if you're in the Canadian wardrobe, you can't be in Japan. That's just not allowed. So it's not like you could walk from the Canadian Pavilion to go to the casting area and change out of your wardrobe and go home. You had to like go backstage, get on a transportation, go around so that for the uh, guest of the park, there's no incongruity. You're not standing in you know, the Japanese Pavilion looking at somebody in the British Tea Room wardrobe like that would be odd. And it would be out of sync with the idea of what show you're or what part of the show that you're in. I mean, it's a simple concept, but it's exactly the same today. And today I'm like, you know, well, you know, if a bellman if we were in a banquet hall, like what, why is why is the banquet uniform in the, the Canadian ballroom or why is the hostess from Clockwork seating people in rain? Like these are conversations that we, we have today. <laughs> They're rooted for me in my training and my experience uh, in Orlando. And that's a fundamental eye on detail as well. When I did my training with Canadian Pacific under Norm Astelier, as a young manager, we always used to say to one another, when we went from heart of house to front of house in the front office, jacket, jacket, because that's what you got when you became a young manager. You became, you got to wear your jacket versus just your shirt sleeves. And so we would always remind the younger managers, jacket. It was just a way of comporting yourself. I've even known some hotels that disallow employees to move through the show area when they're not on shift, if they're not dressed appropriately, because they're recognizable. Guests will know them. So they have to go through the employee entrance or, or dress on site. But even, Bill, it's even about things like, you know, how do certain things happen? You know, like if you need to do maintenance work, if you need to, you know, we're installing the Christmas tree or like whatever those things are, like we take great care to make sure that there's a reveal moment. So, you know, whether that's pipe and draping an area, is there appropriate signage that says there's something coming soon? I remember very clearly, you know, anywhere at Disney where there was anywhere, it, was, it really was magic. You could leave tonight and come back for your shift, you know, eight hours later and like an entire tree and garden and waterfall feature or something would be either completely gone and replaced with something else or appear that had never been there before. And it was done just as if it were magic and the guest would never know the difference. And that was uh, an, a very powerful lesson. And, and Walt himself, you know, that was rooted in his idea of dreaming this place that let people transcend themselves from reality for the period of time that they were uh, in his park. And I think I certainly take that with me every day when I think about how we curate our spaces. 
And that's where we'll wrap the first half of our conversation, mostly so that we don't start into stories that we can't finish. I find it amazing to see where the sparks of service begin. For Edwin Frizzell, who was learning from his parents while he worked at the general store, along with being inspired by a 1980s TV show that was based on a novel by Arthur Haley. Be sure to come back and listen to the second episode where we explore Edwin's transition into leadership, the value of creating good stories, and falling in love with an iconic property. As always, if you enjoyed your time in the Service Center and want to get informed about our future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you download your podcasts. It's really helpful to the show if you could leave a review, maybe share your favorite part of an episode, or drop me a comment. The Service Center podcast is hosted and produced by me, William Murray, and our cover art is created by Jack Designs. Thanks for choosing to spend your time here and invite you back for more guests, stories, and service insights on the next episode of the Service Center.